Can I listen to your podcast? Welcome to episode four of Middle School Music, where old school meets new school in the middle. I'm Farhan Lalji, and with me is Dario Duet. Dario, how are you doing this morning? I'd be better if we didn't have to sit in this room and, and re-record the intro. Yeah, so for those of you who are detecting maybe some audio issues, some changes in the sound quality from your usual podcast, we had an amateur podcasting error this morning where we accidentally deleted our intro. Yay, us. But hopefully you won't be able to tell too much, and hopefully you'll still be able to enjoy the rest of this podcast. Um, Dario, what's been going on in the music industry that's caught your attention? It's been a relatively quiet week. I think there are a lot of new album releases to look forward to next week and for the remainder of the year, as well as in 2020 and beyond. Great stuff. And on this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about digital audio, piracy, the evolution, uh, how piracy has evolved. We're also going to talk about an interesting music startup. And with every week, we're also going to discuss new music that's released this week. Dario, do you want to kick us off and tell us a little bit about the early days and maybe where some of the origins of digital music and piracy started? Yes. So my generation, some refer to as the Pokemon generation, is the expectation of getting things for free and we're doing no wrong when stealing online. So we grew up with a strong relationship between internet access and piracy. So... When we think of piracy, we think of Napster, we think of P2P file sharing such as Kazaa, Blubster, LimeWire, ShareBear, WinMX, <laughs> you know, some might think of IRC. But some food for thought is that piracy actually kicked off with the Columbia House or Columbia Records uh, mail orders that you mentioned last week, Farhan. So wait, so you're saying that my generation is to blame for the whole piracy debacle that we found ourselves in the early 2000s? I mean, I'm not pointing any fingers. You're literally pointing fingers, Dario. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe to, to get some context as to, to why I see it through that lens. Well, as Farhan mentioned last week in episode three, you would receive a, a weekly catalog of, or in some cases, monthly catalog of new album releases from Columbia Records. And uh, you would attach a, a penny to that. And then you would receive the albums and send back the ones you didn't like. And the kind of album of the week or album of the month, they would send that physical copy with a bill or an invoice for you to pay. And um, so in, in some cases, you were either writing a check, because believe it or not, people did that back in the day. So you would write a check for, for this amount, but you would also give them all the key information around your personal statement, your address, your phone number, all of these details to provide Columbia Records with who this person is. And then they could, I guess, kind of attach that to your credit worthiness and then unlock the, the distribution of the Columbia House uh, subscription. Because that was actually one of the first music subscriptions, right? It was kind of seen as, oh, you're going to subscribe to this. Yes, you're going to pay a penny or a, or a dollar or whatever it might be up front, but it's basically an ongoing subscription over a period of time. So tell me, Farhan, when you received those albums, was there ever a time where you threw the, uh, the invoice or the, the bill in the bin? You know, I can't say that I did, to be honest, for me, and maybe this is kind of why I've ended up in financial services uh, later on in my career. You know, I kind of felt this sense of responsibility, right, that I had taken this responsibility. And, and to be honest as well, like it was even if you saw the whole deal out, it was a pretty good deal. Right. So if you did the logistics and did the calculations around, hey, I'm going to get these 10 
albums for a pound or a dollar or whatever it was, and then I'm going to have to buy another 10 or 20 albums over the next two or three years, and I'm going to pay the sticker price for that 10 or 20 albums in the future. Overall, because you got those 10 albums up front, the average cost of the album would be much cheaper than going to your HMV or Sunrise Records in Canada or the Tower Records or anything else in the U.S. as well. Yeah, so I think you either may be an anomaly in that instance or the the case I'm about to point out is the anomaly case. But you hear of stories of, of uh, you know, kids doing that or teenagers doing that, that era would uh, receive the albums and chuck the, the invoice. There's a case that I read online where uh, a guy was caught out by his parents eventually considering he had this massive CD collection and they were wondering, where did you get this from? And uh, his father made him repay all the outstanding debts. Um, but, you know, that's where, where some believe that actually is the, the origin of where getting music for free or hacking the system kind of worked. That, that's really interesting, right? Because you get, I guess, kind of like piracy or theft really would have started in the record shop, right? Like you, you go in and maybe you take what's not yours and you walk out with something under a shirt or something else, right? That would have felt a lot more like theft. Right. And I guess in this instance, it's that transition of something that's an obvious theft to something that's a manipulation of a system. Right. And I think that's what you're seeing. And when you talk about Columbia Records, that's the first real kind of manipulation of a system rather than an actual physical theft that's happening in a retail environment. Couldn't agree more. Now, the onset of digital piracy really kicked off when the MP3 was designed by Karl Heinz Brandenburg, which is a German acoustics engineer. And he discovered that an audio file could be compressed down to one twelfth of its original size without distortion. So he created this file shrinking technology, which revolutionized the way that music had been consumed since the 90s. So, you know, when it, the MP3 format became accessible, it really created opportunity for people to start getting creative in the same vein that you just mentioned about redistributing music and in, you know, it's inadvertent piracy. It's, it's funny you mentioned that, right? Because like, I think in the sense where I didn't feel, you know, kind of even the intention to basically take Columbia Records and do that form of piracy, right? In terms of throw the invoice out, I've got my 10 records, I've got my 10 CDs for a dollar. But what I was perfectly comfortable doing was at the advent of kind of cable internet where you started to see kind of broadband-like access to the internet, uh, my friend and I, we kind of spliced and split uh, a cable internet access across our apartments. And we were both using Napster, Kaza, LimeWire, all of these applications to download music. And we would have a shared drive where we were storing that music between us as well, right? That network um, kind of environment that we had created where we could both dump MP3 files. And there wasn't that sense of, oh, this is theft. It was a sense of, oh, somebody's put this music online and we're acquiring it. It felt very different to walking into a record store and stealing in that sense. But looking back at it, somebody somewhere had ripped the initial MP3. You know, whether or how that was actually collected, we didn't want to think about it. All we knew was we were getting access to free music at that point. I'm glad you mentioned that. Have you ever heard of rabid neurosis? I have not heard of rabid neurosis. Tell me more, Dario. Okay, it's not a disease, but rabid neurosis is the group that was responsible for leaking some of the biggest albums during the early to mid-2000s. Now, what is rabid neurosis and how did this kick off and who were those people that were on the inside that were leaking this material? Well, it actually kicked off 
with a, a temporary employee at Polygram CD Manufacturing Plant in Kings Mountain, North Carolina in the USA. And uh, he goes by the name of Benny Lydell Glover, um, also known as Dull Glover. And what is interesting here was Glover was an intern at the plant and he wanted to secure a permanent contract. So he went to a party one night of a, of a permanent employee. And at this party, they were playing music, which he'd never heard of before. And he was like, where does this come from? And through a bit of you know discussion and, and um, amongst his his peers, he realized that this music was actually coming internally from the plant. Now it was instilled or drilled into their heads that you don't leak music, you will be arrested for it. People had been arrested for it before, but as the music industry started making more and more money during this time, and you know labels were were booming, they were charging more than fourteen dollars for a disc. And as we mentioned last week, not all discs were created equally, and so compromised quality etc made it almost unjustifiable to spend that amount of money then you hear about how the mp3 gets released and all of a sudden it planted this idea into into benny's mind that there's an opportunity here to actually make a vi create a viable business out of this so let me get this straight so there's an individual who's working for a polygram who's working in the plant who starts to basically ignore the no theft kind of uh, policy within the production place. And because that lines up really neatly with the German acoustic engineer who's created this MP3 format, you're starting to see actually these two things colliding. And now the CDs are being stolen and they're being ripped into a way, into an MP3 format that can be shared electronically, digitally over the internet in a far more easier way to share piracy than was ever done before. Is that correct? Yeah, but what gets more interesting is that Polygram had a dominant position in adult contemporary. So, you know, no one really would want to hear the pirated version of Brian Adams and Sheryl Crow. They wanted Jay-Z and the plant didn't have it. Now, the on the MP3, the first officially pirated MP3 was Until It Sleeps by Metallica. And, you know, Metallica's kind of involvement with the whole Napster legal case started there in, in, in 1996. Now, what wait, wait, wait. I think that's an important, important piece that you just kind of dropped on the listeners. And I, I'd love to kind of explore that a little bit. So say that again around kind of Metallica's MP3 track. So Until It Sleeps by Metallica, that was like the first pirated MP3 ever. Is that correct? 100%. So on August 10th, 1996, the CDA, which was now well, renamed Rabid Neurosis, released to IRC, which is a chat network, which some might not be familiar with, uh, the first officially pirated MP3. Wow. So, I mean, I used IRC in the late 90s and the early 2000s. It was kind of like a, a precursor to... Um, the, the later on kind of chats and, and global kind of chatting community. I use it too. <laughs> um, yeah, and so IRC, you would have a channel, I guess, right? So there would be channels around music and people would then share the digital file on that IRC channel. And that music channel was called The Scene. Gotcha. So there was a, a, a channel on IRC called The Scene and Until It Sleeps by Metallica as an MP3 gets released into there. And that, I guess, is, is kind of that first snowflake that turns into this snowball, that turns into this avalanche of digital music piracy. Well, it, it all worked out, you know, timing is everything and it's the key. So in 1998, Seagram Company announced that it was purchasing Polygram from Philips 
and merged it with Universal Music Group. And this changed everything because instead of focusing on adult contemporary, this just wedged open the floodgates. Universal had cornered the markets um, on rap in particular with Jay-Z, Eminem, Dr. Dre, Cash Money, and Lil Wayne. So Glover has now put himself in prime position where he's packaging these albums as part of this underground piracy, piracy network in, in the IRC and on the Wares scene, that's spot with a Z, some of you would be familiar with that. And uh, this changed everything. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, going back to your earlier point, right, it was like going from adult contemporary, where the listeners were probably in their, you know, at the earliest late 30s and onwards, to now you've got an audience of young people who are cash poor, to be honest, most of them are probably students, whether it's high school or university, right? They can't necessarily spend the $14, $15 on every CD. They love music. These new genre of artists are coming out that are really kind of attracting young people to music. And so at that time, when now you've also got the MP3 coming up and you've got the access to the universal catalog, it's almost like there's this perfect storm to unlock digital piracy. Every once in a while, a marquee release would come through, such as the Eminem show or Nelly's Country Grammar in 2001. Now, what was interesting is that those releases, when they got taken from the label or the recording studio to the actual press or manufacturing plant, would arrive in a limousine with tinted windows, carried from the production studio in a briefcase by a courier who never let the master tape out of his sight. So when one of these albums was pressed... Every employee was wanted at that plant. So you're probably asking, how on earth did these albums still get leaked? And why were they leaked? Well, the leader of Rabid Neurosis, who goes by the name of Kali, he would read various uh, documents or financial documents to understand you know, annual reports, what's happening in the M&A space, to understand who owns what plants and who can he get to know in those plants, within those supply chains, to leak that sort of material. And eventually, he had strong relationships with every single supply chain manufacturer uh, for every major music label. I think there's another probably aspect to this as well, right? Like as MP3s become more and more popular, as more and more people are downloading software to actually convert their CDs to MP3s, you also get this community of people who are also contributing to this network of music that's available. So while my guess is here, and my assumption here is, while it started with a group like Lab Rabid Neurosis, and where you're seeing this small group of people having access to this catalog, once actually making MP3s becomes a lot more easy for the average person, it probably becomes a lot easier for that average person as well to convert these into MP3s and share them as well on these sites. And all it takes is, is one, right? Like I remember um, in my early days in university, uh, and I won't say how, but somehow the an early version of the miseducation of Lauren Hill fell into our lap. And the first thing we did was because the, the person who placed it in our laps, said he's going to take it back. But what we did do was we recorded it from CD onto tapes, and then we dubbed those tapes over and over again. So all of us had copies of Lauren Hill's Miseducation of Lauren Hill months before it actually was released. Now, if that had been five, six years later in the early 2000s, and somebody had given me a, an early release CD, I could very well have almost you know, without thinking about it, instead of recording it onto a tape, I would have just ripped it onto MP3s and probably put it on a channel like IRC. Very, very sneaky. <laughs> now, these albums that were leaked, 
typically appealed to what some call Generation M&M. It was the computer-obsessed male between the age of 15 and 30. I mean, you can't tell me uh, that anybody between the age of 25 and 50 today didn't know what Napster was. Mm. But let, let's get into Napster. So so how does Napster come about? Everyone talks about, oh, Napster is the is the the exemplary case of piracy. Now, what actually happened was uh, Sean Fanning was a user of IRC, so he was part of the scene channel where Glover was involved and, and Callie was involved with rabid neurosis and, and leaking this material. And uh, he felt that IRC was inefficient. It had too many barriers to entry. So let's, uh, let's commercialize it. And that was when he introduced Napster. And this is where things come around, right? Because Metallica goes from being the very first MP3 to be ripped to becoming uh, the plaintiff in a lawsuit against Sean Fanning and Sean Parker and Napster, whatever it was, LLC or whatever else, to, to actually take down the, the level of piracy that had kind of spiraled to a place where, you know, kind of it was dominant and was having an impact on actual record sales. Yeah, and I think also... Uh, you know, Dr. Dre was also involved with suing Napster on a, a separate occasion. But I think it put it put labels in a in a very difficult position because, as you know, in some independence cases, they couldn't afford to really sue the the, the music industry to sue Napster. Sorry. So you know, you could look at strategic partnerships to try and rather uh, leverage that opportunity um, in the same way that Spotify has today. I mean, Napster, in, in my opinion, is essentially what. Uh, Spotify of the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting that Sean Parker, who was you know one of the co-founders and early kind of capital into Napster, was also one of the first angel investors into Spotify um, as well, right? So you kind of see that coming full circle. It's just curious that the labels took so long to actually put their feet into the digital scene. And I guess part of that, it's almost that fear of cannibalization, right? So they were worried that actually going full tilt into digital would actually radically reduce their amount of sales. And there was a lot of protectionism in terms of trying to keep their industry as profitable as possible. You know, I wonder if they had actually created Spotify or created a digital music sharing, music sharing channel much sooner from a distribution perspective if we would have seen, um, you know, kind of that evolution happen a lot much quicker in terms of what we saw instead. So I believe that somebody did try and do this in 1995, uh, but it was quickly shut down um, because, you know, the music industry was thriving. Why would they want, you know, if it isn't broken, don't, don't fix it. But what I felt was quite intriguing was the industry not only sued Napster at the time, but the RIAA also sued Diamond Multimedia because Diamond Multimedia was the first company that created a commercially successful MP3 player. However, they lost the case and uh, Diamond walked away unscathed because the judge said that the MP3 player was just a hard drive and that uh, they couldn't limit sales. That's interesting because I remember using Winamp um, and Sonic and, and other kind of applications to actually listen to music, right? And I guess that had kind of changed the CD player, right? It was no longer kind of that you needed that physical hardware, but if you had that digital um, application to actually play the music and the involvement and in kind of saying, well, you know, is playing an MP3 the crime, right? Rather than actually making the MP3. And I, and I think we kind of were very lucky that the courts kind of found in that way. And I guess um, in some ways, it's it's a good thing that that the, those things happen. Um, sometimes the courts actually do come out on the right side when it comes to music piracy, and that was definitely one case 
where you saw a real rational judge kind of make a ruling to say that actually Winamp, Sonique, all of these other MP3 players were not in the wrong by just providing people a way to play music. I agree. And for me, being ba- you know, I grew up in Cape Town in South Africa, I was exposed to this world in, in 1997. I remember having Winamp with the worm skin and I was just, I was taught that you could download music and, you know, being geographically located where I was, music releases was, were, took you know, a long time to get there. They were expensive. You would hear about something, read about something in a magazine and you'd want to hear it, but it would take ages for that album to come. This just reduced that lead time. So, you know, I went through the motions of the Napsters, Audio Galaxies, Kazar, Kazar Light, Blubster, LimeWire, ShareBear, Winamax. Okay, okay, we know there were a lot of these. <laughs> and, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that on top of that, we also had super slow internet that cost a fortune. And on the point of internet speed, that was the stimulus or part of the stimulus for Daniel Ek's idea, which is now Spotify. Because, you know, Sweden had, I think, the fastest internet yeah. speeds... Uh, in in Europe, and it was uncapped. M- the music industry was going through a terrible time in the in 2008 around around the crisis, and the market was just fertile for the taking. I mean, a couple of things to kind of point out. Still staying in those early 2000s, it was interesting to see how, other than kind of the courts, artists and labels were fighting back, right? Because they would also kind of pump new music or kind of files that looked like new music out onto these channels as well, right? So I remember the times when you download something thinking it was a new Jay-Z track or thinking it was a new Eminem track, and you'd open it up and it would be just kind of screeching or it would be somebody talking, saying how piracy is illegal, things like that to try to kind of get the message out to people who were participating in that digital piracy market. Madonna did that, I think it was in 2005, I believe, where eventually, you know, everyone was, oh, Madonna's the album, download. And it was uh, pretty much. Uh, uh, it, it was like Madonna talking to people, saying, "Don't, don't pirate my album." To put it lightly, I mean, I know Eminem yeah. put a take on it in 2013. He released the Marshall Mathers LP two. He put out a public service announcement, kind of a slapstick approach about how piracy is making him tour more and making him take drugs. It's actually funny enough that video has been taken down. You won't be able to find that online. And and that kind of led us to the labels to the artists actually realizing that this kind of model um, was coming whether they liked it or not, right? I think we saw that actually what we needed to do was kind of move into something that was a little bit more legitimate. And I think there was probably some some like hard kind of milestones that happened, right? Like people actually did go to prison. There were actually some some real kind of heavy consequences to piracy that made the market and both sides of the market, both the supply and the demand in terms of the producers, the labels, the artists, and the market themselves in terms of people who wanted access to music come together to find a solution that actually worked. Do you want to talk about some of those milestones, Dario? Yeah, so, I mean, the fight continues. You you, you might have Spotify and uh, you know, people people get put away behind bars, but there's always a new person that comes onto the scene. You know, we've seen countless uh, websites that still offer leaked music online. Uh, you know, there was the mega upload case, which was essentially almost a cloud server, and... Uh, they actually got a lot of artist support during that legal case regarding how 
it it helped artists to transfer music and, and aid the creative process. But you know, Mega Upload was unfortunately the, the exemplary case. But but many of these services or similar services still exist. Uh, you know, there there are websites that that currently exist where or forums, should I say, where leaked music is prominent. I mean, there was a there was a site, Music Mafia, which you can actually search online. It's no longer there. It was shut down in August last year. I found it fascinating. They used crypto to trade unreleased albums. They had the Lil Wayne's Carter 5. They have an unreleased Jay-Z and Beyonce album. And they would also sell you the contact numbers and email addresses of supposedly any artist or high-profile businessman or woman in the in the music industry, that's hilarious. I uh, I was watching Carpool Karaoke with Chance the Rapper last night, and he was actually talking about how both Jay Z and Barack Obama have numbers for their assistants. So Chance the Rapper, if he ever wants to talk to Jay Z, apparently he calls an assistant, says I'd like to speak to Jay Z, and then Jay Z calls him back on a private number. And I wonder if part of that is because of these leaks of numbers of, of the actual artists. So having to change their numbers and their contact details. I mean, I'll be honest, uh, I've been on PitchBook and I've, I've, <laughs> I've typed in Jay-Z and I've typed in Dr. Dre and there's a number on there and I have tried to call them. But Dr. Dre's supposed number just takes you uh, to a deadline and Jay-Z's number takes you to Rockefeller Records. <laughs> and I just got stage fright, put the phone down. Um, but uh, I'm deviating away. But but there's actually something that's, that's some food for thought here is about new age piracy. So it's really about stream ripping and uh, click farms. But uh, stream ripping, you know, if you read the Global Music Report of 2019, stream ripping is a huge problem. And, you know, YouTube MP3.org, which had 60 million visitors per month, was shut down, which led to a, a, almost a 26% drop in, in global stream ripping activity. But the problem still exists. I mean, as of January last year, 2018, you had over 400 million visits for stream ripping websites. Now, Part of that, in my opinion, could be because of the fragmented uh, distribution or streaming platform market. So if you go onto Spotify, you'll find that you can't get Dr. Dre's Compton album, but you can get Kush, which was a single release. You can get some features featuring Jay-Z, but you can't really get any of his, his material, probably because of the title link. So these, the, the, the fragmented market almost encourages uh, this problem. Yeah, and I guess there are different ways that people are looking to kind of solve that problem for themselves, right? So you have, whether that's going to YouTube, and I have a number of friends who don't subscribe to any uh, digital distribution of music, but instead will kind of play playlists on YouTube. And there's a lot of contention around how much artists should be earning from YouTube streams as well, right? And that's another way that it's not necessarily piracy in the same sense, but what it is is, is, is the artist being properly represented or properly um, getting a reward for their creation, right? And I think that's some of the challenges that we were talking about in the first episode of Middle School Music. And now we're seeing that actually that's still an issue. Even with music streaming sites, uh, becoming more and more prevalent. You've got Spotify, you've got Beats, you've got Tidal. All of these things are in market and they have um, millions of people using them, but we still see a market for access to these uh, almost free channels for accessing music as well. It's funny you mentioned YouTube. I mean, you know, it's, the, it's almost the the breeding ground for piracy. You can just quickly put up a, your own lyric video of a song and, and artists lose out on that. But irrespective, even when the label puts up an official release from an artist, 
YouTube has the worst per stream payout out of every streaming platform. And that is 0,00074 US cents per stream for artists and content creators. So in order for them to make around 1,500 US dollars, you almost need close to 2 million plays. Uh, it's it's kind of weird because you know, I love watching music videos and, uh, you know, I mean, I just used to sit in front of MTV and watch MTV all day. So now you you turn to YouTube for that. An artist puts out a video, which they, they have a lot of overheads for. They put that up on YouTube, might get a lot of plays. But actually the return on that's pretty pathetic. Yeah, I mean, it's really only the the, street, the videos or the music that streams in the hundreds of millions that the artists are making a significant amount of revenue from streams. Otherwise, you know, there, there's a lot of promotion. And I think you're absolutely right around lyric videos uh, as well, right? Like any individual can put up a lyric video and it will probably be some time before the label or the artist or YouTube themselves. Because let's be honest, YouTube doesn't necessarily have the most incentives to take video down if it's not offensive, right? Like piracy on YouTube is prevalent, um, both from a copyright perspective in media in general and especially from a music perspective. And the incentives are just misaligned. YouTube wants to be able to talk about the number of streams, talk about the number of videos in total. And if they're reducing the amount of content that's on their channel, then they're not going to have the numbers that they really want to show to the market. Uh, here's something to blow your mind. Did you know, Farhan, that Napster still exists? Okay, but what's going to blow your mind even more is that it remains the king of streaming music service payouts. So it is a profitable music streaming service, and they pay out uh, 0.019 cents, US cents per stream. So actually, the service loses around 7 US dollars with every 5 million paying subscribers. So I think we're, we're at a point now where we've seen a lot of evolution in the streaming space. There's probably more evolution still to come as we see consolidation of players, as we see kind of streams and stream payouts evening out, as we see kind of artists working with the labels, working with their management, working with the market to actually come to a place where hopefully everyone gets rewarded at the right amounts at fair levels and the market is paying what we believe to be a fair price for access to that media as well. So Dario, have you seen any interesting new digital media music companies uh, that are of note? Yes. So on topic for today regarding piracy, Legitary provides a solution to audit streaming data and detect eventual fraud. So wait, so they're trying to kind of detect if you're actually getting paid out as an artist in terms of the right amounts based on all the streaming uh, distribution channels that are out there? So they give you a tool to gain control over your royalties and bring fairness and transparency to royalty accounting. So to answer your question, it's really about determining the streaming providers paying you correctly because there is a pain point on both sides there. You know, the first side really is around click farms and... Um, uh, fake streams. Now, the, the fake stream or kind of fake fan problem has existed for quite a while. And, you know, you can even take that back to Universal Music Group in 2011. And I remember actually seeing this myself and I found it really weird. And then an article came out a couple months later uh, where you'd gone to Eminem or Rihanna's fan pages on Facebook in particular. And this did happen on Twitter too. And you'd look and see, wow, they've got tons of fans and, and you know, everyone would be super impressed. When you actually looked at the analytics breakdown, the, the largest concentration of fans came from, from New Mexico City. And I was like, well, this is really weird. You know, I didn't know people there really like these artists that much. But actually, UMG was buying fans for those artists. 
Yeah, and I think there's also so that's one side of the fraud or um, you know kind of lack of transparency or unclear kind of streaming side. But you also get actually people still ripping music and then kind of putting it on with a different name or putting it on with a slightly different name and then gathering the click data and gathering the stream data and the stream royalties on behalf of themselves rather than actually going towards the label or the artist as well. And that's that's what I think you meant when you talked about like the the fraud that's happening from an individual kind of streaming perspective as well, right? Yes. You'll hear about a new release from I don't know, uh, the Rolling Stones and somebody, and they know that the song will be called My Way. So then somebody just comes along and makes some random track called the Rolling Stones My Way and everyone clicks on it. Then that person just makes a bunch of cash. Yeah, and I mean, the challenge is because artists still want to have different versions of that song, right? So you might have an artist like Taylor Swift who will, because she's trying to make up with Spotify, might go to Spotify and do a live recording of You Gotta Stay Calm, right? And at the same time, you've got her original track available as well as her live track. So artists are kind of putting out multiple streams of their own track themselves legitimately. So as a market perspective, you're out there, you're, you're searching for a particular track and you see, oh, wow, there's a live version as well as, or there's a remix, right? You get DJs doing remixes of those tracks as well. So you're seeing that there are multiple streams. So as an individual, seeing two or three or four versions of the same song is not necessarily out of the ordinary. You, you'd almost expect to see that. But what you don't expect to see is um, somebody kind of calling it the name of the artist, calling it the name of the song, and then not actually having that kind of played out or having a lower quality version. And as a market consumer, you're unable to actually tell that this isn't the legitimate push that the artist has put out there. And then on the flip side, you've also got cover artists, right? Like, you know, if I'm uh, Alicia Cara, who's grateful because she gets to put out her music on YouTube and that's how she gets discovered. And you have an artist like Sean Mendez who uses Vine to get discovered. And they're both grateful that they were able to use other artists' music to promote themselves and get discovered. And those are my two Canadian artists mentioned for today. <laughs> so, um, you know, we want to pay that fine balance where new artists and new creators can still come onto the market. But at the same time, the originators, the, the actual producers, the actual artists who are responsible for that art are also being rewarded. And that's the dichotomy that we face in the digital music space. I couldn't agree more. So, so talking about the product of what Legitary is, it's, uh, it was built in cooperation with Vienna, the Vienna University of Technology and uh, their research group for computational statistics. So what they did was they analyzed big data arising from streaming accounting, and they developed a new statistical method where they apply machine learning to detect irregularities in that streaming data. And they uncovered more than 92% of accounting fraud instances in royalty statements. Now, in an industry which uh, it's very difficult in itself to make money these days, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome to see that fraud detection software is becoming more prominent in the space. You see uh, click farms are a big issue, particularly in the Chinese music industry. Yeah, and I think that could be an episode on its own. So I think that's a good place to, to hopefully end this uh, review of legendary and new companies in the music space. All right, Farhan. So it's New Music Friday. I see uh, Yellow Wolf has released a new track called Opie Taylor. He's got a new album coming out on Friday, the 18th of October. It's his first release since Sadie Records coming out on Slim American, so that's independent. Other than that, for me, it's, there hasn't been too much 
that's too exciting. My guilty pleasure, I've been listening to Prida, bit of a techno, some good house there. Otherwise, Buster Rhymes, The Anarchy from 2000, uh, some great collaborations there with MOP and Lenny Kravitz. But uh, why don't you tell me what you've been listening to? So I found some deep cuts in the uh, New Music Friday playlist this week. Um, I was really interested to see uh, there's a new track by the Black Eyed Peas and Jay Balvin called Ritmo, which is from the new Bad Boys movie, so Bad Boys for Life. Nice. So that track is really interesting because it's also based on, um, I don't know if this was probably well before your time, but an old dance track called, called The Rhythm of the Night by Corona. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the new track with Black Eyed Peas and, Black Eyed Peas and Jay Balvin is basically lifting that sample, and I think it's really, really well done. That's interesting. I, I know a couple artists have tried to to remake or reinvent songs using that sample. Uh, let's hope this one makes critical acclaim. Yeah, I think the fact that it's tied into the Bad Boys movie as well will help from a promotional perspective. And Jay Balvin is you know, pretty hot, as we've talked about in the past, with reggaeton music and the Latin flavor. So I think that combination with the Black Eyed Peas and Will I Am's voices is a really interesting track. Um, I was also really interested, I think I thought you'd be interested in the new Logic featuring Mike, Mike Posner uh, track. There's a track called Fun Up Here. And it's quite interesting because it's literally back-to-back on New Music Friday with this song called Routine by Wale, Meek Mill, and Rick Ross. And the interesting dichotomy is Fun Up Here with Mike Posner and Logic is talking about all, everything outside of money. So talking about like almost how, uh, and this might sound a, a little bit cheesy, but how you, can, you can't fill your heart up with money. And then right after that, you've got a track with Wale and Meek Mill and Rick Ross all talking about the drip, all talking about their their cash flow and their their ability to spend money. So it was a quite an interesting contrast. I got to listen to those. You talk about Logic. Uh, I see he's featured on a track with ASAP Rocky and Juicy J called Twisted, which was led by French Montana. Yeah, and so there's a lot of really interesting hip hop this week. I mean, I also have been playing this week uh, Gucci Pajamas. By, <laughs> by Guap Dad 4000, <laughs> Chance the Rapper, and, and an old school head's favorite in Charlie Wilson uh, as well. And then uh, I was really fascinated to see that there's a U.S. television series uh, called Godfather of Harlem that's on the Epics Network, a network that I'd never heard of and a show I'd never heard of. But the really interesting thing to me was Swiss Beats is curating a playlist for that television series. And there's some amazing songs by uh, Jidenna, by uh, Swiss Beats himself, by Rick Ross, by ASAP Ferg, by Skip Marley, by French Montana. Uh, but the one that really caught me by surprise was the reemergence of DMX on a track called Just In Case. Uh, you've got the Godfather of ha Harlem soundtrack produced by Swiss Beats with Rick Ross and DMX. And it's nice to see that DMX, while, you know, you can obviously tell he's been out of the game for a little while, he still has that customary kind of dog growl. Arr. Exactly. Uh, and so that was fun to, to listen to this week. I see uh, DMX has uh, re-signed with Def Jam since uh, being released from prison. And uh, I'm glad to see that he's finally making music again. I hear that he or Def Jam's pushing him to release a Christmas album. Now, I don't know if that means an album by Christmas or for Christmas <laughs> or an actual Christmas album because he did do a rendition of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and it did gain a lot of traction. And I do think that that actually could sell. So uh, let's wait and see what happens. It's October. I refuse to talk about Christmas. Um, the other thing that my guilty pleasure has been Yacht Rock. Are you familiar with Yacht Rock? Is that a genre or a person? It's a genre. 
So yacht rock is uh, late 70s soul inspired rock. So Mike McDonald joined the, the Doobie Brothers in the late 70s and they had a song called What a Fool Believes that won uh, an, a Grammy and it kind of spiraled into this genre of Mike McDonald, uh, the Doobie Brothers, turned into basically all the way up to Hall and & Oates and that kind of area of music. So you've got Robert Palmer, you've got the Doobie Brothers, you've got Mike McDonald, you've got some of the Eagles tracks could kind of qualify as some, some yacht rock, some of the Pointer Sisters and things like that. So the late 70s, early 80s kind of mix of rock into pop has been my guilty pleasure this week. Very cool. I've never heard of it. Uh, I must check it out. I mean, I must say I'm a, a bit of a rock fan. Also, I've been listening to a bit of uh, Velvet Revolver, uh, Motley Crue, and some of Slash's uh, new material. So hopefully that you can see that we're not just kind of one genre wonders here at Middle School Music, where old school meets new school. We do cover all genres and, and all interests. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Middle School Music, where old school meets new school. You can find us on Twitter at MDLSKL underscore music. Uh, I'm Farhan Lalji. You can find me on Twitter at, at Farhan Lalji. And Dario, where can the good listeners find you? I'm Dario DeVette. And you can find me on Twitter on at Dario underscore DeVette with a W. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Ciao. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>